Tonight we arrive at the end of our series entitled Living Well, based on chapters 1 through 9 of Proverbs, what's known as the prologue. But if you were paying attention during our readings, we got a bit ahead of the prologue and ended up with the last poem at the end of the book of Proverbs on the excellent or valiant or noble woman or wife in chapter 31. It's a well-known poem. And it's fitting that we end the series on living well here at the end of the book of Proverbs for, for a couple of reasons. First of all, this poem picks up the themes and the framework of the prologue and frames the bulk of the wisdom sayings, chapters 20 through 29, with, uh, you know, combined with the prologue of 1 through 9, and, and then this poem in chapter 31, there's a framing going on. And then secondly, this poem depicts for us an embodiment of cosmic wisdom, revealing what wisdom looks like in one particular situation, but its application goes far beyond that situation as well. And so the really good thing about ending a series called Living Well on Proverbs 31 is that here we get to see what living well looks like in one case, and then this helps us to see what it looks like to apply wisdom into our own lives in whatever situations that we find ourselves today. So I have more to to say on both of those things in a moment. But I want to say first, I want to acknowledge that this text, Proverbs 31, is a polarizing text. More often than not, at least in some parts of the church, this poem is heralded as the holy grail of womanhood, the gold standard. So in these circles, it's the highest compliment to say, oh, you are a Proverbs 31 woman. And we've all heard this being paid, this compliment being paid. On the other hand, there are women, maybe some of you sitting here today, who upon hearing that phrase actually start to cringe and find yourselves having a slightly repulsive reaction to the phrase, which which seems to you perhaps to be unfair and limiting. And I want to suggest that there might be good reasons for this polarizing nature of the text, uh, and, and just explore those for a moment. On the positive side, this woman embodies wisdom lived out as a wife and mother in a particular culture. Her kindness... Her provision for the poor, her compassion, her provision for her family, her business savvy, her long-term planning, all of which stem from her fear of the Lord, Proverbs 31.30, a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised, are worthy of imitation. And there is much to be said for not throwing this text out, but for meditating upon it, as many have done in the church, particularly those who have been called to be wives and mothers, in saying there's a lot to be gleaned from a text like this, despite the fact that it comes to us across lots and lots of cultural distance. Those attributes that I just listed off are tremendous and terrific attributes of any wife or mother. And so I want to uphold those of you who hear the Proverbs 31 woman and think, that's what I want to be, and say that's a good thing. We don't want to disparage that. But on the the other side, perhaps for those of you who might cringe a little bit at that phrase. There are a number of things to say on that side as well. If Proverbs 31 is held up as the gold standard of womanhood, uh, a few things ensue. One is that however great and wonderful the women that we know in our lives really are, they don't ever attain to that standard. And so when we use Proverbs 31 as the gold standard we inadvertently make lots and lots of wonderful and wise women struggle with guilt 
and shame over not measuring up to the standard. Now, obviously, that could apply. We're all called to imitate Jesus. But there's a way in which sometimes this particular text can kind of be blown up in such a way as to induce guilt and shame. And that's a problem. And that's not something that we would want to do in the church. Secondly, using Proverbs 31 as the gold standard of womanhood could also suggests that to be truly to truly be a woman means that you need to be married and to have children. But this is a huge problem, obviously, in a church that follows a man named Jesus, who himself was single and who authenticated the single life as a very right and good and holy and whole way of being a human being. And that's something that the church has work to do to validate, to hold up, and to honor as a community that follows this man, Jesus. So using this text as the, all caps, ideal for womanhood has the potential of alienating single women from their full vocation as servants of Christ. And that's something that we wouldn't want to contribute to either. A third thing to say is that the Proverbs 31 woman finds herself at the top of the social ladder. She's the top 1%. She owns land. She sends for her materials to make clothing to distant countries. She's living in Beacon Hill, riding on a big you know, six-figure salary, maybe seven-figure salary. And to suggest then that this standard, at least in a kind of one-to-one way, is what we're to hold up to women all across the world, most of whom who will never have access to those kinds of privileges and opportunities becomes almost cruel in a way, when it gets sort of flatly applied. And and so I want to be nuanced about that. And shouldn't really be done. And a fourth thing to say uh, on this point is that um, it bears saying that there is no single passage in Scripture that has at least culturally in the church. I would argue that Psalm 112, which we read tonight, is in a sense the male equivalent to Proverbs 31. It's the picture of wisdom embodied in a male person. But there is no, there's no text, even Psalm 112, that culturally in the church has taken on the same kind of golden status standard for men. So in effect, if in a Proverbs 31 saturated church in terms of defining who we are to be as men and women, the picture becomes the women doing all the work and the man just appears sitting at the city gates in verse 23 and then praising his wife in verse 29. Now, obviously, uh, this isn't a text about, you know, what manhood looks like, so we wouldn't want to read that into it. But it is to say that I do think it's fair to suggest that when we blow this up in such a way and loom it large over the community of God's people as the gold standard for gender rules, that it can reinforce the stereotype that is often far too true of lazy men and overworked women. And that would be a travesty, to men and women alike. So I hope I've offended everybody uh, at this point. Um, The root problem with thinking about Proverbs 31, which is a beautiful and wonderful text, which I hope to kind of expound a little bit more, in this way that it's been co-opted, is that we uproot it from its context in the book of Proverbs and turn it then into this golden standard for gender roles. It's interesting that this kind of gold standard reading is often exercised more from women to women 
in the church. So just to take a quick test, I went to Amazon and I searched for Proverbs 31 woman. And the first five entries that came up were books written by women to women. The sixth book that came up was entitled The Proverbs 31 Woman and was by a man named Mike Murdoch, who also wrote a book entitled 31 Secrets of an Unforgettable Woman on the Book of Ruth, and a book entitled The Uncommon Wife, 31 Qualities of Every Effective Wife. So he's either got guts or no wisdom at all. Uh, I'm not sure which one. I've never read him. But this acrostic poem, which starts with, with the, the, it, it, it begins each, each um, phrase with the, uh, the next, the succeeding verse or letter of the Hebrew alphabet, was written to men. Interestingly. And this insight, I think, helps us begin to put it back into its proper context in the book of Proverbs. And I hope to appreciate it in a new way. That is, the way that this text gets most used in the church today as a gold standard for womanhood taught from women to women is not what it was originally given for or how it was given as a text written to men but applicable to both men and women. Remember the prologue. Humankind's quest for wisdom is portrayed as the young man's quest for a wife. The metaphor is employed in the prologue to illustrate the fact that wisdom deals with questions of ultimate desire. To become wise requires that one loves wisdom, that one gives his or her ultimate affections to wisdom. Because remember, to lose the heart is to lose the war. And the father of of the prologue knows that unless he grabs the heart of his son to love wisdom as he would love a woman, he knows that he loses the war. So Proverbs 31, again, circles back around to where the prologue began and addresses in one final scene the eros of wisdom, once again. To desire this woman and all the benefits that she brings to one's life is the hope of Proverbs 31, 10 through 31. The men to whom this text is written are urged to find this woman. We're told elsewhere in Proverbs that this kind of wife is a gift of the Lord. But ultimately, this is an urging to find and desire wisdom herself as the poem explicitly relates the valiant woman of Proverbs 31 to cosmic wisdom portrayed in chapters 1 through 9. And it does this in two ways. First, by showing the similarities between this woman and wisdom in chapters 1 through 9. The poem begins like this. An excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of his life. Back up to Proverbs 3, 13 through 15, and hear these words. And note the explicit echoes. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding. For gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. She is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Find comparison with jewels, which comes up again in chapter 8, verse 11. And gain, these words repeat themselves there in Proverbs 3 and at the beginning of this poem in Proverbs 31. This woman also in chapter 31 works hard to build up her household and provide for it and nurture it. 
Just like the woman does Lady Wisdom that we looked at last week in Proverbs 9, who builds her house and hewns out its seven pillars and prepares the food for her household. Here's how Christine Roy Yoder puts it, an Old Testament scholar at Columbia Seminary. Both are known at the city gates and bestow honor on their companions. Both, that is, wisdom in in chapters 1 through 9 and the valiant woman of chapter 31, are physically strong and loathe wickedness. Both extend their hands to the needy. They laugh and both teach. Their identities and instructions are associated with the fear of Yahweh. This comparison... The second piece of evidence that this woman in chapter 31 represents cosmic wisdom is the fact that every aspect of life is touched by her actions. This is a very action-oriented poem. It's all about what she does and is doing. Yoder again makes the point that the valiant woman's activities encompass time, rising early in the morning, going late to bed. They encompass the body, touching hands, eyes, arms, mouth, tongue, mind. And they encompass place, beginning at home, moving out then to the local community, then to distant lands, and then circling back to home again. The picture we get is of this woman touching every area of creation, every area of the cosmos, much like cosmic wisdom in the early chapters of the prologue, who stands over creation and who creates all that we see and know and experience. Wisdom applies, that is to say, to every aspect of our lived lives. The mundane, the everyday, and the extraordinary. And that's illustrated well by this poem. So appreciating these details then helps us to rescue Proverbs 31 from being simply a checklist for one gender and helps us to then see the bigger picture of this text in light of its context in the book of Proverbs which is to say, though written to men, it encourages all of us, whether married or single, male or female, rich or poor, young or old, to seek and embrace and to steward well the opportunities and work that God has given us to do in whatever particular situation that we happen to find ourselves in. In the case of this character, the valiant woman, a wife and mother in her particular culture. But in each of our own cases, expanding to any particular context in which we might find ourselves having been called, whether in family or business or real estate or law or farming or art or accounting or community organizing and on and on and on. The valiant woman is a model not just for women married with children, but for all of us to embrace the work and the life that God has put before us and to live wisely and well in every time and every place that we find ourselves. In harmony with God's created order. This means first and foremost, which is where we began the series many weeks ago, And which is where Proverbs ends its book in verse 30. Fearing the Lord. That's an inclusio from chapter 1 verse 7. We see it again in chapter 9 at the end of the prologue to kind of sandwich the prologue. And then we see it crop up again here at the end of this poem that ends the book. So the book is framed by the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All that this woman represents in Proverbs 31 flows out of her heart of fearing the Lord. Acknowledging that he's over all and in all, that he upholds the world and its moral order, 
and that we are accountable to him. It means acknowledging that we're not free, that we're not autonomous, that we don't choose our own destiny and have no consequences, but that our lives are derived from and dependent upon a God who has made the world, who has made us, and who has set up boundaries and order within that world and called us to live in accordance with his design. It means that we're to live and to act before him first in everything that we think and say and do. And here's how Paul says it in the New Testament, Colossians 3, verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Living wisely means, like this woman in her particular context, being intentional, being industrious, being compassionate and kind, knowing the condition of our lives. She knows the condition, verse 27, of her household, being prepared for hard seasons and unexpected challenges. In this case, snow, verse 21. She's not afraid of the snow that might come in the highlands of Judea because her children are clothed well. Being attentive to learning and discovering wisdom in our lives and then passing that wisdom on to others. Verse 26, she opens her mouth with wisdom and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. Living wisely means, as we've seen throughout this series, loving wisdom and seeking her and avoiding evil, trusting in God, hearing instruction and rebuke, drinking deeply the good gifts of wisdom that have been given to us and the good gift, most of all, of God himself. And choosing wisdom in the little moments and the big ones. So the question of Proverbs 31 is not so much to one gender. Are you a Proverbs 31 woman? But it is to all of us throughout history and throughout time. Are you a man, woman, or child who fears the Lord? Who in everything lives in harmony with God and his created order? And the picture that we're left with through this valiant woman at the end of Proverbs is of the blessing that a life like this brings to us and brings to those around us in our family and in our neighborhood and in our world. To live wisely is to live well. It is to be blessed and to be a blessing. So one thing that I hope that this series has done for you is that it's helped you to ask that question of, am I living wisely? And if it it has at all, if you've thought about that at all, then no doubt you'll begin to quickly realize that you have fallen short. That we've all lived wisely at times and unwisely at times. And that oftentimes the unwisely portions of our lives are the greater portion. And in light of that kind of self-reflection, then I want to say in closing that the cross looms large for all of us. Here, wisdom himself, the ultimate personification of wisdom, not the poetic one, the valiant woman of Proverbs 31, but the real one, the man Jesus who lived, died, and rose again 2,000 years ago. Wisdom himself pays the ultimate price to break the power of our propensity to folly and to win over our hearts our ultimate desire and to draw us back to himself. Here's what I want to leave you with, that Jesus himself is the ultimate embodiment of Proverbs 31. 
who enables us to have no lack of gain, right? And provides resources for his own. But unlike the valiant wife of Proverbs 31, he doesn't merely rise early and go to bed late, but he goes to the cross under death and rises again for our sakes. He nourishes not with food that makes us hungry again, but with the bread of life and the living water. He clothes us not with scarlet, but with robes of righteousness that we surely don't deserve. His strength and his dignity were not worn on his sleeves like the woman of Proverbs 31, but were seen to be weakness and reproach. And they were seen in that way intentionally on his part, for your sake and for mine, ultimately because of love. And Jesus then comes to dwell in us by his spirit, to enable us to do what we cannot otherwise do. This, in short, is the gospel, the invitation to us, and the possibility granted to us to actually live well. To choose wisely. At the end of this text, because of her service, because of her efforts, because of her industry, because of her care and her compassion, her children, verse 28, rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. And the whole book ends, and let her works praise her in the gates. Those of us who have been provided for by the ultimate embodiment of cosmic wisdom are his family. And what we do definitively, our single greatest act as his family, is we, like the children in this text, rise up and call him blessed. We stand up and praise him in the gates with our lips and importantly, in light of this series, with our lives. Lived well. Lived according to wisdom. According to Jesus. Amen.